Pleased to introduce uh, and welcome Stephen Lightfoot, who's chair of the MHRA, and uh, one of our friends in the, the media, Ashley Yeo from Informa, who's going to take a, a little sort of fireside chat approach to see what's going to be happening with the MHRA going forward. Over to you guys. Thank you, Andrew. Um, thank you very much for the pleasure now to speak to Stephen Lightfoot, um, chairman of the board of the MHRA. Um, who succeeded Sir Michael Rawlins in that role. Um, Stephen took up the role last September. That was a few months before the de facto Brexit. And now we've had a few months of experience of the UK being a third country to the EU. So in the devices area, how will the MHRA manage through this time of great change? Um, how might it change? What are the possibilities ahead for UK devices and also for the MHRA on a global scale? I intend to ask Stephen those questions. But first, welcome Stephen. Well, thank you very much, actually, Ashley, and uh, it's a great pleasure to be here. Excellent. Uh, before we go into the questions, can I just also thank everybody for their very kind comments about the MHRA? Um, I, I must say, I, I feel quite humbled by the positive uh, comments that have been made, but we also need to recognise the MHRA is not a thing. It is made up of 1,200-odd people, and it's actually the talented staff of the agency that have done all that fantastic work. So not just uh, Rob and Johan, who you see today, uh, and some of the alumni that have also been on the call today, but uh, my real tribute and thanks goes to all the staff of the agency. Uh, they're the people who've done all the real work. So, okay, that's, that's, that's the thanks over. That's great. Well, um, um, b before we start, can you say a few words about yourself, including the devices elements that, in your career to date? Yeah. Okay, for, for those of you who don't know me, my, my name's Stephen Lightfoot. So I've been... Uh, I had a 30-year career in the pharmaceutical industry uh, with companies like Roche, uh, Shearing, uh, Data, Sankyo, and GE Healthcare. And although that experience is largely on medicines, I have actually touched on uh, devices in a number of different places. So, for example, at Shearing, uh, we acquired the Medrad contrast media injector business to support our contrast media center. We had a, you know, a range of catheters for infertility treatments that supported our women's health business. Um, and certainly at GE Healthcare, uh, I was responsible for the global uh, radio pharmaceutical and pharmaceutical diagnostic business, about $2 billion of uh, sales around the world. And I worked really closely with our OEM colleagues on the hardware and software, uh, where we're trying to minimize the radiation dosing, CT and nuclear medicine, by optimizing hardware, optimizing software, and optimizing the imaging agent. So I don't pretend to be a, a devices expert, but do, I do have a very strong appreciation of the role that health technology plays. And I guess at the other end of my career, the last eight years, I've had a portfolio career of non-executive roles. And so I'm deputy chair of my local NHS trust. Uh, I'm chair of Sussex Primary Care, as well as being chair of the MHRA. So I've seen healthcare from a number of different perspectives. And I think that's quite important at this time of great change, as you rightly say, actually. Mm, so a fantastic experience. Um, belated congratulations, too, on the, on the new role. The new role so, uh, eight or nine months ago. But what a time to assume it on the cusp of the biggest regulatory oversight change for the UK since perhaps the three uh, EU directives came in. I've got uh, sort of four batches of groups of questions I want to ask uh, ask you, Stephen. Now, you came in um, just as the agency was releasing its document on the UKCA marking, uh, product registration needs and UKRPs, etc. You knew though already that a big change had to happen for UK devices. Can you tell us something about the evolution of the MHRA thinking on the UKCA marking system since then? Yeah, it's, it's, I, think, I think it has needed to evolve, um, you know, and it's evolved through consultation. Um, you know, I think we really value the, um, 
relationship with not just with the trade associations but also individual companies. And, and I think one thing that we've learned through the Brexit process, but also COVID as well, is that dialogue is good. Uh, you know, because at the end of the day, we can only fix issues if we really understand what the implications for those are. And, and, and so I think in reality, that, that regular dialogue um, was, was really important. Also, I think we pride ourselves on being pragmatic. Um, and, and so it's been really important to avoid regulatory protections. And so I think as, 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 as our intention became clear, you know, we knew there's going to need to be a period of adaptation for the industry. And, and it was really important that we actually have a standstill period that we're going through a, a period of informal consultation, which we've completed. In the next sort of uh, couple of months, we'll be starting a more formal public consultation on the next stage. Um, and, and, and that's part of that ongoing dialogue. So I think it's, it is evolving through dialogue. Um, you know, we are going to have to ultimately reach a final conclusion. We do want to do that quickly because you know, we don't have two and a half years or never have two and a half years to fix this. You know, the reality is we need to make the policy decisions this year yeah, we need to make that really clear then uh, in legislation early next year and then leave a period of adaptation for, for industry to be able to ad- adapt to a final solution. Great. So um, the formal consultation you refer to, can, uh, can you tell us what, what's the start point of that process and who will be involved? And I'd like to get a flavour of what goals you want to reach with that consultation. Yeah, we, we, you see, the, 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 the consultation uh, will be a, effectively our view of the overall framework. Um, you know, I think it's unlikely we're going to give you the statutory instruments and the and, 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 and the and, and if you like the legal wording, um, but I think we need to be able to paint the picture of how these regulations are going to improve patient safety uh, and how they're going to support innovation. Uh, and, and so I think we'll need to, if you like, set out the, the case for the change. Uh, and these are the proposals that we, we're making, if you like, in strategic terms and allow people to contribute to that. And it will be a public consultation, so it will be open to members of the public, to companies, developers, uh, healthcare professionals, anybody who cares to, to contribute. And that's, that's going to be a vital part of that. I think we'll have to keep then uh, working alongside other key stakeholders, and I would say the key stakeholders are ABHI, among others, um, you know, in terms of actually getting into some more of the nitty-gritty detail. Uh, and of course, our devolved administration. So you know, it has to be a very, very broad and, and wide consultation to make sure we're taking into account all the different stakeholders that are involved in this. This is a once in a generation opportunity. We really do need to take that opportunity and, and, and get it right. Yeah, and you mentioned the timing there. Time slips away. We've watched as industry has panicked a little bit in a controlled way about the MDR deadlines. And then next, we've got the IBDR as well, the, with the cliffage feel about it. But at the same time, we've got the UKCA marking. Uh, which will become man- mandatory in the UK after 2023. Uh, the CE marking no longer admissible. How will the MHRA use the time left after that parliamentary process you talked about um, to, to stand up? I mean, how confident are you in being able to stand up a usable system in the time limits you have? Well, I think that's, that's got to be the aim. You know, I, I think that uh, it's about having uh, you know, the people in place to do, to do the work. Yeah, we we'll, we'll, may well need new systems, and, and actually we've just signed off earlier this week a, a multi-million pound investment in further IT systems. And, and so actually we're putting the components in place now. So the work doesn't, you know, nothing, we're not going to be in a position where we're going to wait until we've got a final set of rules before we start developing. We've got to do some work in parallel here. It's the only practical way. Um, but yeah, certainly the aim is to make sure that we give as much time as possible to implement the recommendations. 
I'd like to think that the way we dealt with the uh, with the Brexit situation, there was a lot of people very worried about the cliff edge on the 1st of January. I think we demonstrated a regular dialogue with industry. We provided as much guidance as we possibly could, as soon as we possibly could, and we avoided any regulatory cliff edges. I think that's the model that I would see us using when it comes to you know, June, July, you know, 23. So, so if it came to it, so this is a bit of the same question, are there mechanisms in place to be flexible, to offer flexibility on that standstill period, add another transition element, perhaps if the timings are looking tight, to, to pre, um, print precisely avoid that cliff that you're talking about? Again, let's not admit defeat and assume that we can't get it done. So let's start off on the positive that we will get this done and we will, there will be a reasonable length of time for our industry to adapt. Uh, but I think what will be is pragmatic. You know, I think that's really, really important. And so you know, I'm not going to make a commitment now that we're going, to, we're going to fail to achieve the deadlines and therefore we're going to make an extension provision. We're actually going to go to try and hit the deadline. That's the starting point. Okay. Uh, a question now about the uh, um, other parts of the post-EU um, UK structure, uh, post-EU structure in the UK. The, the, the Act, Medicines and Medical Devices Act, lays a ground for the UK to set its own post-EU standards and rules. Um, can you tell us a little bit, um, give, you, give us some idea what you see as the secondary legislation that that, that might encompass, um, sort of when and how? Well, we heard Lincoln saying this morning talk about... Um, the, uh, the um, innovation support mechanisms in the US. Is that the kind of thinking that might uh, characterise MHRA thinking? Yeah, there's a number of aspects. I think we need to recognise that um, you know, through, through the COVID situation, one thing that's been shown is that health is important. Uh, you know, and I think that actually progressive responsive regulation is part of the solution. I think that's what we've seen during COVID. And I think the fact that the Medicines and Medical Devices Act went through Parliament at a time of great pressure, both from a pandemic and from a Brexit perspective, it's still got government priorities, shows that there's a real serious intent here to ensure that we we end up with a new regulatory system that is fit for purpose, that it is reflecting current technologies and gives us that future-proofing that obviously this session is, is going to do. So there'll be a whole series of secondary legislation, and, and actually we're already putting plans in place in terms of working out when we're going to get the parliamentary time to, you know, to, to lay the various statutory instruments that are, that are involved. This won't be done in one hit, it will be done by a series uh, of, of uh, you know, legislative changes. Because actually, we're talking about creating this, as I said, once in a generation opportunity to create a, a new regulatory system. And, and this is just the device. We've also got work to do on, on, on other areas as well, thinking of the, you know, the medicine piece as well. So this is, uh, you know, devices come first, but actually, we've still got work to do in the medicine area too. Okay, so you speak of uh, opportunity for innovation and great ambition, also for pragmatism, as you've, you've mentioned, for the MHRA. A lot of people in the industry have talked up the value of greater rather than lesser um, convergence with the EU system. What is your view on very close EU alignment? What would be the value of that? What would be the impediments, perhaps? Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting question. I think there's, there's no doubt the agency has to be out-facing. Um, but, I, but I think that rather than beholden just to a European system, I think we need to look rather more globally uh, than that. And I think if I'm, if I'm completely honest, you know, having run global businesses, you know, we're in a global industry. You know, and, and I think actually looking to what the US is doing, uh, you know, for example, is one of the things and directions that we need to look. And I think also the other extreme in Asia, because there's, there's certain aspects of regulatory systems around the world where I think we've got the opportunity to maybe pick and choose. 
So yes, we absolutely understand the need for international alignment. You know, we understand absolutely that the system is not is fragmented at the moment. Um, so I think on key standards, yes, we want international alignment. But I think we also maybe want to think about best practices. And I don't think it's just about looking at Europe, because it, you know I actually do think that uh, the, the, there's a number of aspects of the, the US which is very valuable. And we talked about MDSAP in, earlier in this particular uh, seminar today. And that's just a good example where there might be a case for being more aligned to that than some of the European uh, components. Okay. Well, can, can I ask you about the, the defining perhaps the best practices that we might the UK might want to avail of from, say, the FDA, Australia, Singapore, um, to apply in the, UK, in the UK system. Can you give us a, an idea of the elements that might be better than um, UK, EU regulation uh, for the UK? Well, you know, again, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I don't want to pick out specific points. All I'm saying is at this stage, while we're going through the development, you know, we're actively looking at best practice from around the world. And I think when we come to the public consultation, you know, some of those components will be, will be visible, I believe. You know, but I, I think it's also important probably to say that I'm not convinced that one size will fit all here. Um, and, and I think that's quite an important component because you know, I think for a large global organisations, you know, the, the lighter touch approach, if you like, once you've got something like MB Snap in place, you know, makes a lot of sense because you, know, you clearly, you've got the, you know, the really robust quality management systems, you know, there's a lot of experience, there's a lot of resource, then actually that light touch regulation approach could potentially be the right, right way. Okay. When you come at the other extreme, you've got a startup out of Cambridge or Oxford University that haven't got the resources or the experience, they're going to need a different type of regulatory system. And I think rushing straight into MDSAP is not going to be the way forward. So I think you're going to need a, a second domestic route that's probably got more advice associated with it and absolutely more support. You know, and, and I think we need to think one size is not going to fit all. So therefore, we're going to have to have different routes for different type of companies. And that gives the companies choice. Now, we can't have 25 different alternatives, clearly, but I think we can have more than one. And, and I think that would be part of the thinking that we do need to incorporate into this. Okay. So is, is that to say you'd be considering a system that, in fact, relies partially on work done in other jurisdictions in order to achieve that light touch in the UK? Um, and be able to perhaps focus on these selected areas of, of innovation where you, where you perhaps want the UK to major? Yeah, well, well, well this really helps actually in terms of the international alignment, doesn't it? Because, because I think actually we, there are going to be situations where it will be helpful for industry and developers uh, and to make sure the UK remains competitive to rely on uh, other jurisdictions. You know? and, I, and I think we, we're looking at this in medicines just as much as we are looking at it in devices. You know, and so I think there is a case of mutual recognition and reliance in, in certain defined situations. And then, as you rightly say, there may be other areas where we actually want to say, OK, you know, we're going to have a much more specific UK approach. Yeah. And, and, and I think actually, you know, as, as Ian was talking about, you know, the whole area of digital uh, and, and software as a medical device, AI as a medical device, it's completely right for helping to mould you know, the, the global regulatory landscape. And I think the MHRA has got a role in terms of actually doing some of that leadership work because we've got fantastically good people, you know, and, and actually you know, the, that real pragmatism, you know, I, I think is going to be so important. And so we want to maintain our global reputation. We want to main, be, remain a world-class regulator. 
And I think we'll do that by focusing on some really, some, frankly, some of the most difficult areas to regulate, mm. probably is the area where we can come, you know, really into our own. Uh, and and may, there may be other sort of more standardised areas, more mature products that, frankly, maybe we can agree that a reliance model might be more appropriate. And I think the other component around the international landscape is that um, you know, it might be a case of trying to move the entire global regulatory network. It's going to take some time. But there might be groups of like-minded regulators where we can actually work together more quickly. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and again, just to give you an example, on, on the medicine side again, you know, we, we've joined something called the Access Consortium, which is the regulators of Australia, Canada, Singapore and Switzerland, and now including the MHRA. You know, and I think we're going to look on, on the medicine side of you know, aligning some of our regulatory processes and can we have some level of reliance. You know, and suddenly you're dealing with a population of 150 million people, not a population of 65 million. Now, maybe there could be similar options in terms of that reliance model you know, with, with like-minded regulators on the device area as well. Yeah. So that's, that, that's not a, a clear decision, but that's just, if you like, the way I'm thinking about this is that international collaboration is the way of helping to move this forward in a way that keeps the UK competitive. And the reason that we're doing that is to ensure that UK patients get new technologies and new products as quickly as they possibly can. Excellent. And that's really our raison d'etre. Great. Um, I want to ask you a couple more questions about international, but I, I want to ask you a quick one about use of guidelines in, in the UK as the, as the system evolves. Is there a possibility instead of using uh, uh, the longer form regulation legislation that more guidelines will be put in place to make precisely to, to create this system that's a bit more fleet-footed um, in the UK with perhaps uh, international connotations as well? Yeah, you see, you see I, th I think the real trick here is actually thinking about risk. It's, it's all about risk proportionality, you know, and, and I think actually with higher risk, uh, you know, product areas or, you know, or, or particular uh, technologies, then we're going to have to, you know, have probably a more stringent approach. Uh, you know, clearly with lower risk, then I think we can take a, a different approach. So I, th I think the whole area of risk analysis is going to be the is going to be the critical component of this. Okay. That's going to start to determine some of the routes that we, that we might want to take. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a, that, that's going to be a key part of this without question. Okay, I wanted to ask you a question about COVID. Um, uh, we talked about the leadership role uh, as you have too, um, that the MHRA has, has, has shown in, in global terms of late. Um, the agility that MHRA showed, um, as, as Michael Kipping was, was talking about um, earlier today, um, brought a number of lessons. These lessons and experiences during that period are going to be presumably part of the blueprint for the MHRA as it develops this, this, new, uh, this new role in the world. Yeah, without question. You know, you know, I think that you know, the way that the agency has responded, and it's the, it's the people in the agency, uh, you know, it is people like Steve Lee and uh, you know, Mike Messenger and uh, you know, other people who have been involved uh, that, that actually yeah, made the difference. It's the people that made the difference, and we should never, ever forget that. But I think actually some of the key lessons would be about being more proactive. So the type of product profiles that have been mentioned today, you know, clearly, you know, well, one example would be uh, there was a vacuum. Let's fill the vacuum and, let, and let's do the right thing. You know, the level of dialogue with, with industry and developers, it was a critical component to that. Um, you know, and I think actually then being prepared to take pragmatic, you know, risk-proportionate decisions uh, you know, to, to enable derogations where they were appropriate was, again, the completely the right thing to do. So, so, so I think there is a level of flexibility. 
Now, now what we're going to have to do, I think it was a, a comment earlier, we can't, we can't manage all the time through derogation. You know, regulation by derogation is not really the option here. So we, we're going to have to have a framework, but a framework that gives us some flexibility uh, to, to be able to uh, you know, ensure that we are ultimately you know, managing access, innovation, and safety. And, and I think they're the three components that are, that are going to be really, really important. Excellent. Um, your, your colleague, back, uh, on, back onto global themes, if, if we may, your colleague Rob, uh, Rob Higgins was, was detailing uh, the experiences, early experiences of the IMDRF, um, MDSAP, um, for the MHRA. In your view, what, uh, what use can the MHRA make of that status that it has at the moment at the IMDRF? Well, I think it's one of contribution, um, because I think actually we've, we've, we've got a contribution to make. And, uh, you know, what, what, what Rob was talking earlier is, uh, you know, when he was actually representing Europe almost on his own, you know, now he can represent, the, you know, again, the UK. Uh, and I think a voice at the table is very, very important here. Um, you know, it will take time to get you know, all of the global regulators in exactly the same space, and people will have different approaches and different levels of risk appetite, if I'm honest. Um, but you know, I think you know, we pride ourselves on being pragmatic. We pride ourselves on being you know, progressive and flexible. Uh, you know, and I, and I think actually we can be the voice of reason to say, okay, let's. How can we move this forward in a pragmatic way? How can we use the experience and the science base that we've got? You know, and, and that gives us a unique, unique level of knowledge. And I think actually, you know, the Brits are never afraid to express opinions, and I think that's really important. You know, so we have to be at the table, which is why you know, becoming the you know, okay, officially observers for the time being uh, of IMBRF and MD South, but ultimately I hope we become full members. And then, yeah, through that, we want to make a big contribution and actually make a difference. So you, you see very clearly the MHRA MHR being, MHR being an influence of global policy on a pragmatic and a reasonable voice and a contributor uh, at the table. He said, can the brand, can the MHRA brand, the UK brand, be used then in that sense to attract um, the wealth, investment, the inward business back to the UK? How do those two things um, inter interrelate? Yeah, you see, I, I, th I think that the MHRA is only part of the solution as far as that question is concerned. I don't think we can single-handedly resolve the UK economy. So I, I think we need to just manage a few expectations, if you don't mind. Um, but, but I think actually, you know, in terms of the, the whole area or the whole government's ambition around the life sciences agenda, in, inward investment on research, inward investment on, divest, uh, on development, inward investment on manufacturing, all of those components are, are vitally important. The MHRA can play a, a role in each and every one of those, but we can't single-handedly do it. And so it's going to have to be a team effort, and that's why we've got much more partnership working with other parts of the health system. Uh, in, you know, I just heard the, the question earlier, you know, I'm talking about the, the multi-agency um, uh, collaborative that we've got going now you know, in, in, the, in the AI space, specifically, you know, as agencies working together. As we're doing on clinical trials, yeah, we're working very closely with combined ways of working uh, on clinical trials with the HRA to have combined regulatory and, um, and ethics approvals. You know, we're working closely with NICE on innovative licensing and access in innovative medicine. I'd like us to do something similar on, on devices. Okay. Yeah, so I think partnership working across the system is the way to achieve that, and the, U and the MHRA wants to be part of that solution. Okay, and, and also wants to assert, uh, assert itself as a leader, um, a global leader in science, in areas, as you just said, um, pinning down how to regulate AI as it interfaces with health tech and devices. This is an, a this is an area where the, the UK could really put its head above the parapet and, um, and be noted 
in the post-Brexit phase? Yeah, we've got, we've, we've got to balance that. You know, we can't take over the world and, and, and we can't be arrogant about this because actually I think when it comes to scientific uh, you know, knowledge, then I think, you know, I think we do have to listen to others' views. Having said that, you know, I think we've got a role in that discussion. Uh, and, and I want us to actively contribute to that discussion. Okay, so it's my last batch of questions now, uh, and it's kind of nuts and bolts on innovation uh, and patient safety, and it's a very basic question here. Do we, in the post-Brexit phase, envision the MHRA continuing its successful central role in device regulation in the UK as we know it, by itself, on its own terms, government-funded mainly? So that's kind of the, my own future-proofing uh, uh, question thrown in there. Yeah, you see, you see, I think the whole funding question is actually uh, is multifactorial, if I'm honest. It's not quite as simple as, uh, you know, we've, we've got a gap and the government's going to do it. I think as far as resourcing is concerned, you know, we've got to start by helping ourselves. You know, and I think the agency has grown up over, you know, since 2003 when it was first formed with the MCA and the MDA being combined and then CPID added on and then, uh, you know, National Institute of Biological Standards and Control being added on. You know, the agency has grown um, you know, but organically, as it were. But I think we're going to take a, a root and branch view of the agency. So I think, frankly, we've got to start by helping ourselves and we're going to have to reduce some of our costs. You know, that's uncomfortable and it's difficult. But I think there's other areas where we're going to need to invest more. You know, and, and so I think, I think we're going to have to make sure that we're working efficiently and productively. So, yes, you know, we're, we're looking to, to, to save costs and make ourselves more efficient, invest in technology. Uh, yes, we are absolutely going to be making a bid for the spending review, and the discussions on that have already started. Uh, you know, but I think also we've got to leave on the table the option of fees for industry. Now, it's very clear to me uh, that industry cannot fund all of this, but similarly, I don't think government can fund all of this, and similarly, I don't think we can make enough savings to fund all of this. So, I think it's going to be a combination uh, of the three. So I think we've got to help ourselves. We've got to invest in new technology because some of our technology is just frankly too old. We're going to look for extra government funding and we will have to have the discussion on fees at some point. And those, those, those funding questions will roll over into the next 6, 12, 18 months, I presume, as, uh, with the ongoing uh, consultations going on at the moment. But um, one of the um, one of the key things that you've accentuated here is uh, is is the focus on innovation. Um, so, can are you, can you able to give us some idea of how the agency might change to meet those that particular um, remit in regulating for uh, data, software, three D printing, digital genomics, the whole panoply of of advanced um, technology, medical products, CDX, etc., um, coming through the line for the UK. Yeah, you see, strategically, that's a, it, it's, a really, it, it's a really tough challenge, actually, because we're going to need to make sure we bring in and have the expertise. Uh, you know, it, it starts on expertise. I think some of that, that's one of the earlier uh, presenters was talking about, we're going to have to learn as we go along. And I think, I think that's exactly right. You know, I, I don't think anyone's going to have exactly all of the answers. But we do need to make sure we've got the right skills in place, and, and, and that's, that's the, 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 the prerequisite. I think certainly we're going to have to make sure um, that we're working with the developers, you know, because I think actually some of this is being developed as we progress. You know, and it's being prepared to be flexible as long as ultimately we take that risk proportionality into account. Right. So everything we do has to come back to you know, what is the risk here, because you know, our role has got to be to keep patients safe. And we can't underestimate that. But I think that actually, particularly on, on the, in the clinical trial arena, 
you know, then, then I think then what you want at early stages is quick decisions. So I think if everything we can do to accelerate clinical trial approvals for, for, for those particular uh, you know, products that require uh, you know, clinical trials, then that's vitally important. Um, you know, so that's part of our role. You know, I think it's, it's also a case of then being open to particularly the converging technologies. I think that's where you know, I think the old boundaries, if, if you like, of medicine or effectively of drugs, devices, you know, diagnostics, digital and data. You know, they're five product groups at the moment, but they're really not. They're going to become one. And I think actually how we navigate our way through that is going to be really quite critical. And so I think from an agency point of view, I think rather than just looking at specific products, we need to be thinking of the life cycle of all products because some of these boundaries are going to blur. So that's why I, I do see as having a, a, a team responsible for innovation, a team responsible for access, a team responsible for safety, you know, and, and actually sharing the experiences across these multiple technologies that's going to help to make us more competitive. Excellent. On, on that safety theme, you'll be expected to feed into some of the thinking that the Cumberledge that went into the Cumberledge report um, and the recommendations that came out of that, the review in terms of adverse event reporting. Um, maybe um, the, the notion that um, the MHRA has no involvement in pre-market uh, phase of medical device development um, and a regist registries of devices. So there's a lot on the patient safety side to factor into, which must become a a huge theme of the, of the agency as it goes forward. It, it is, you know, and, and again, we've, we've signed up a major investment in a new system called Safety Connect. You know, we're very much, uh, you know, working, uh, you know, one of my non-executive directors is actually on the advisory panel for NHS Digital, for example, on the registry development. So, you know, we're keeping very close here in terms of actually developing the registries because I think that's part of it, how we bring other data sources in. You know, we're going to need to be thinking of not just sort of a few tens of thousands of reports, but how we're going to cope with hundreds of thousands of reports with multiple sources. You know, as we're using on COVID-19 vaccines at the moment, you know, we've got an artificial intelligence tool that's involved in, in helping us to manage the you know, 500,000 um, know, adverse reports that we've had from patients uh, you know, from the vaccine programme over the last four months. So we're already starting to use that, te that technology, and I think we can build on that. So I think there's definitely a technological component to this. There's clearly an expertise component to that. Um, but it's also then, as you rightly say, it's making sure we, we're actually involved at the right stages in the process. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think ultimately there's, we haven't really talked about patient involvement. You know, and, and I see the other key component to all of this is that there needs to be patient involvement at every stage of the development cycle. From basic product specification and definition, certainly at clinical trial level, certainly during the authorization process and absolutely during the you know, the commercial use and the, the safety monitoring. Excellent. So we got you know, we need to involve patients at each step of that particular journey. That's great. Well um, we are coming close to time now, uh, Stephen, but I've just got one one quick comment that I'd like you to to, to accentuate if you if you would, is that it, you referred to it throughout the partnership relationship with industry, continuing the transparency and the, the collegial approach if as it were that seems to have served the uh, the agency very well in recent years um, to the count to the envy of some you know, counterpart jurisdictions. Even that's uh, that's a policy that you're intending to maintain. Absolutely, you know, I, I think I think we've shown through through both Brexit and, and COVID that dialogue, open, constructive, regular dialogue, is part of the solution. That doesn't mean to say we're always going to say yes. You know, we absolutely have to you know, reserve the right to say no. 
Um, but I think it starts from a process of making decisions based on an understanding of the practical implications. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's where you know, the rubber really hits the road as far as I'm concerned. But I think if we can do that, then I think we genuinely can help to accelerate innovation. I think we can enable access and we can strengthen patient safety. And that's what we're trying to achieve. Two optimistic messages. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, for all the messages, for being so open about it. Um, Best wishes in uh, the challenges ahead. Uh, Thank you very much for your time this afternoon. It's been very interesting. I think now we now hand back to Phil and Andrew, I think. Well, just thank you very much, everybody. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Ashley. Uh, Great. Shame we couldn't have let that one run and run, quite honestly, but it was... It's great to hear that we, you know, got a regulator here who wants to be pragmatic, wants to engage with industry, take an internationally uh, leading role, and uh, be very flexible and risk-based. Uh, that's, yeah, it, it's great. So thank you very much.